I had the very good fortune in my life to have a, an association with uh, a teacher uh, of mine, uh, Sayada Ulakana. Over many years, I first met him in 1997 and then uh, had a long association with him. And I, I think I mentioned him in an earlier talk. Uh, he passed away this last June. And um, he's been on my mind a lot since then. And uh, he came into my mind, into my heart uh, earlier this evening. And I was thinking about giving this talk and maybe because of Annie's talk on blessings and I was thinking such a blessing for me to have uh, known him, have had the opportunity to spend time with him in various ways. Uh, as a yogi with him teaching, taking as his attendant and cook, cooking for him when he visited here, uh, working with him on a, um, a humanitarian aid project that uh, he helped to start in the little village there where the monastery located up in Upper Burma in the Sagaing Hills and uh, being, um, being part of this well of generosity that uh, always seemed to arise around him. Sayada was one of these uh, people who, who kind of embodied uh, qualities of kindness and, and wisdom. It was more his presence and, and the way he embodied those for me than any, anything that he ever said. It was his, the way it just came through in his energy and what it was like to spend time with him. I have a photo that I often keep on on a, a little altar or shrine. Sometimes I, I bring it with me when I travel so I can set something up. And it's a beautiful photograph uh, taken some years ago in in the last years of his life, the last uh, eight or 10 years, I had, uh, had some health problems that came up periodically. And uh, one time we went uh, there, uh, he was the teacher for a retreat that happened every winter for um, many years, still going on. I don't know, I'd have to do some addition. But anyway, since 97, however long that is. And um, this one year he was having some uh, trouble with his heart and he, he didn't look good. And I was, we were all very worried about him. And um, so he was, he, was, he was teaching, but he was keeping uh, his activities to a minimum. And uh, one of, uh, well, there was an older and even a much older monk, Saida was not young then, who came to visit and everyone said that it had been a teacher of, of Sayadaw Ulakana's. And he came and uh, there was a lot of excitement in the monastery. I can't remember if Rebecca was there that year. Were you there? Um, and everyone was saying, oh, this, this monk is coming. And you know, he's, uh, everyone said he's, he's an arhant, fully enlightened being, you know, and he's, he's coming. He came because he'd heard Sayada was, was sick and he wanted to come and, and uh, visit him, see him. And I have this beautiful picture of uh, Sayada Ulakana bowing 
holding, he's just finished bowing and he's got his hands in Anjali and he has this radiant smile on his face. And his teacher has this very, very light, small smile. And Sayadaz is holding his hands in respect, um, having just finished bowing to his teacher. And, um, and it, everyone said, he's just kind of an everyday run-of-the-mill Arahant, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, I didn't realize, you know, it was just so funny. They said, yeah, he's, you know, he's, a, he's an arhat, but he's just kind of, you know, your everyday kind. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> you can, there's no way to know. But uh, there's just something so beautiful about that. That photograph just reminds me of that quality of, of devotion and the sense of... Um, paying respects in that way. And the, the flow of uh, goodwill between them was so powerful in that moment. One time, Sayada, I guess I'm just going to tell a couple stories here. <laughs> it's totally ruining my plan. One time, Sayada was, I think he was kind of teasing me, but he said, I needed a retirement plan said, you need to have a retirement plan. And I said, Sayadaw, I was planning to come here to Chazwa, the monastery. And I thought, I didn't know what he would say. And he said, oh, you're welcome. You can come anytime. It was such a, uh, a beautiful gesture. He said, oh, of course. <coughs> he, he got a big smile as though that was my retirement plan was to come and move in with him. <laughs> you know, yeah, okay, <laughs> come on over. It was so, uh, so lovely. Okay, one more. The first time he came to the United States, he came to teach, help teach a retreat here. Uh, it was a retreat that happens in the spring that was part of uh, first a week, uh, a week of 10 days of metta, and then uh, 10 days of vipassana. And uh, he was invited to come and help teach the metta part. And I, was, I wasn't uh, on retreat, I was cooking, I was willing to try to cook Burmese food. So they called me in and since I knew Sayadaw said, come and look after him. And so we were staying down by the pond where some of the staff and teacher housing is. And we would walk up often uh, to when he was coming to give some teachings. And I noticed one day as we were walking up, I, I saw, noticed Sayadaw was kind of whispering and I listened closely and he was saying metaphrases to uh, animals and yogis and any beings that we passed, he was he was just uh, putting metta phrases. He was saying metta, practicing metta in that way. So I'm dedicating this talk to his memory. I don't know what he would think about this talk, but that's not the point. <laughs> There's probably at least one or two things in there that he'd say, oh, that's okay. <laughs> but it's not because of the subject. It's because he's in my heart so much. We've spoken about qualities of balance over the weeks. And, and in many ways, the, the practice comes down to an exploration of finding balance 
an exploration of different ways that we come to balance and get out of balance and come back into balance. And, you know, classically, of course, the, the Buddha's teaching is called the middle way. And he spoke about this <coughs> in terms of the middle way between extremes of, of self-mortification, whether uh, physically or, or psychologically, mentally, and uh, self-indulgent behaviors, so and it's the middle way between these extremes. Uh, but this movement towards balance shows up in all kinds of ways in our meditation, in our practice, the, the balance between uh, finding what's right effort, bringing effort and energy, and relaxing, and between uh, tranquility and energy in this same way between opening to the truth of dukkha and, and the extreme of falling into despair or, or defeat in light of that. The balance between um, having a realistic assessment of what, what we're working with here and, and seeing ourselves just as a problem to be fixed. Those extremes to be avoided, finding the middle way and the, the entire path can be seen as a movement towards deepening sense of balance. And you could say that uh, the Buddha's realization is the culmination of this, the mind, the heart resting in the deepest possible state of balance, a kind of unshakable balance of heart, mind. A little while ago I came across a verse, uh, it's part of a poem from, uh, I think it's from the Terigata, it might be the Teragata, it's either from one of the early nuns or monks um, who was a disciple of the Buddha at that time, their collection of beautiful poems and verses. This is, uh, this translation goes like this. If your mind becomes firm like a rock and no longer shakes in a world where everything is shaking, your mind will be your greatest friend and suffering will not come your way. There's a couple things I, I like about this first. One is this idea, this possibility that one might have a mind that is one's greatest friend. That's a beautiful idea and not one that I think we, we entertain very often. We usually don't see our mind as problematic, often have an adversarial relationship. And then this idea uh, that the mind is no longer shaking in a world where everything is shaking. You know, how would we develop a mind that no longer shakes, that becomes our greatest friend? What might that point to? We might think of a mind that is not shaking in a world where everything is shaking as a mind that is imbued with this quality of balance, of equanimity. Equanimity, this sense of, of a kind of radical openness to life, to experience, but a balanced openness that, openness that doesn't fall into extremes of reactivity, of uh, grasping or aversion, able to meet 
the flow of life without falling into these extremes. Equanimity is, is very powerful in its own right, this quality of mind. It also supports, strengthens other qualities. It supports uh, wisdom, insight, the arising of, of wisdom. Because when the mind is not shaking in this way, then there's the possibility to stay with the truth of things for long enough that understanding might actually arise. The possibility to um, rest with the truth of things as they are without uh, falling into struggle or resistance or some form of identification. So in this way, equanimity forms a, a basis for the clear seeing into, into the conditioned nature of life of experience, allowing us to see that things arise and, and pass due to conditions and causes. It gives us some space so we don't have to take it all so personally. Bhante and, and others have spoken quite a bit about equanimity, this quality, and it shows up on various lists. It's one of the factors of awakening, one of the paramis, I'll touch on the subject at least for a little while this evening. There's a few uh, characteristics that I'd like to mention and maybe a few suggestions for ways that we can uh, support the development of this uh, quality of mind. I read an article a while ago by Gil Fransdahl and he, uh, in the article, he mentioned that the word equanimity in English is used to translate a couple of different Pali words. And they speak to kind of two different uh, aspects of equanimity, you could say. The first one, upeka, is uh, most familiar to most of us. Uh, it's the one we use uh, when we talk about equanimity as a Brahma Vihara. We use upeka this word. It literally uh, means something like to look over. And it refers to the kind of equanimity that, um, that arises from the power of observation in the way that we are able to see what's going on without being caught up in or lost in what we're seeing. You could, you could say it's the a kind of ease that comes with seeing a bigger picture seeing with a kind of patience, understanding, and a very broad kind of view. Uh, sometimes I think Gill compared it in that article, and I've heard this in other places, uh, comparison with a uh, kind of grandmotherly love. I can imagine a grandmother who loves her grandchildren, but because of her experience with raising her own kids, is far less likely to get uh, lost and caught up in the drama of their lives, has a, has a more broad perspective. And so when this quality of mind strengthens in us, we have this possibility of taking a broader view. We're less likely to get embroiled in, in the minutia of what's happening, of life's unfolding, not so caught up in the details of things. We have um, ability to take a broader view and. We're not so lost in the world of our thoughts and emotions, for example, and all the apparent issues there. 
The second word that can be translated as equanimity is uh, one of these great Pali words that's made up of, of three smaller words, so a lot of syllables, tatra majatata. Uh, the the words uh, that it's made up of. The first one is tatra, which means there, or sometimes uh, all these things. And maja is like uh, the same word as majima nikaya. Those of you who are familiar with that collection, it means middle. So maja means middle, and tata means to stand or to pose. And so when they're put together, it means something like to stand in the middle of all this to stand in the middle there. Point to this ability to remain centered in the middle of what's happening. A kind of balance that's born of a, a certain uh, inner strength, a stability, a calm confidence, a kind of deep integrity. And it keeps us upright, it's like ballast, so it's not a, a stiff or rigid kind of um, of centeredness, uh, being centered, but it's it's like the ballast in the keel of a ship, lets it uh, heel over in a wind, but not fall over, not get blown over. I think I mentioned at one point when I was living in San Francisco, I lived in an old uh, converted fire station. It was a part of my, how cool I was, was getting to live there at that time. <laughs> and parked my cool motorcycle out in front of my old fire station house that I, that I lived in. And uh, I once saw a movie and, and I thought they was set in San Francisco and I looked and I said, that looks like where I used to live. I was on a plane flying back from Asia, I think. And I looked closer and said, that is where I used to live. <laughs> Someone had used it as a setting for a movie. <laughs> Engine 53, I think. And... Uh, Part of, we got a break on the rent because the, the owner, landlord, was building a sailboat. He had it propped up against one side of the building. They got to go buy it. And he was, at one point, he was filling the keel, putting the weight in there, and he was recycling lead out of batteries and things like that and putting it all, putting all this weight in there, this huge fin. If you've ever seen a sailboat out of the water, it's a huge uh, fin-shaped hollow piece, and it's filled with weight. And so it's this kind of inner strength, inner ballast, weight, density there that lets the boat can tip way, way over, but it doesn't get blown over. And so, as I said, it's not stiff or tied. It's not imposed from the outside in some kind of external rigidity. It's an internal stability. A flexibility is built into that, born of, of uh, a, real, um, a real commitment to presence in the moment. But there's this clear non-resistance as part of that. I was visiting a friend who has a teenage son and uh, he had this thing, it was like a, kind of shaped like a skateboard. It went up at each end and it had these blocks on, on either end on the bottom and it fit inside this kind of roller. And you stood up on it and balanced there. It was a balance thing. It was developed by someone uh, as a training for snowboarding, I think. And uh, my friend's son, of course, he could just hang out up there and text and 
and do all kinds of stuff. And I got on it and it was, you know, I'm, I have to do it near the wall, <laughs> trying to do this thing. And, and, uh, and I realized what I was trying to do was find the point in the middle and stay, ba- stay there. And what I realized after a little time that what I had to do was relax my gaze, bend my knees, and relax and just keep moving. And to keep moving, could not stay still there. And that's what, that's then the balance came out of that. It was a great lesson in this quality of, of finding stability within motion or movement. And as this quality of equanimity strengthens and develops, it frees up a lot of energy for us, allows us to uh, bring wisdom to life and rather than falling into reactivity and kind of, uh, you know, patterns of, of uh, sort of knee-jerk reactivity, it, it, it gives us space there and frees up internal energy for responding to life. It, you could say that in the absence of uh, mental habits and patterns of reactivity, intelligence and wisdom have the possibility to function much more uh, naturally and easily. They're free to function. And so a wise discernment can then arise and make decisions about when to act, whether to act or not, what's appropriate, based on the situation, not on um, just uh, reactivity. And so in this way, uh, it enables us to navigate the world of change. As Brian was saying in his talk on impermanence, talking about the the worldly winds that are always blowing through our lives. Equanimity helps us, uh, gives us strength and a kind of protection, helps us to navigate that. So I'd like to mention just a few things um, that strengthen and support the cultivation of equanimity, help give rise to it, encourage it. You could say a lot of things. I just chose a few things to focus on. We've spoken a lot about living ethically, virtue, integrity that comes with living an ethical life. And this is a great uh, support for balance in our lives and um, leads to this inner strength and confidence. We know that we uh, are not um, caught by worry and regret because of actions that we have done. Um, If we are caught in that way, we won't find stability, any real balance of mind. But when we leave, live a life, an ethical life, a life of integrity, then we can find a deep sense of uh, self-respect. And this really supports balance of mind and heart. Meditation practice, the bhavana that we do here, developing uh, mental um, strength and stability through mindfulness concentration. Just as you might work out in a gym, we can also, uh, to strengthen and balance in, uh, the body, we can do this with the mind. And the calm and concentration that uh, develops in meditation um, brings this, this um, again, a kind of inner strength, stability and balance. Allows us to uh, meet the moment, rest in the truth of things how it is rather than how we think it should be. Certain um, 
things we can do to increase our, our sense just um, in simple ways, in daily ways, our sense of ease and well-being. We don't have to leave this to chance. We can do things to cultivate and enhance this. Simple things available uh, just in daily life. Something as simple as once in a while taking the time to slow down a bit. To just settle into simple presence. Maybe sitting on a bench in a park somewhere. Letting go of agendas. Simply being. Letting go of having to accomplish anything. It can be a great support to balance of mind, to well-being. Attention to our diet, exercise, things like this that are, are kind of obvious, but they can fall by the wayside. Or time in quiet, green places. Things like this. Another way that really helps to nurture our sense of well-being and bring balance to our system, to our whole view, is to intentionally reflect on our good qualities, on our uh, wholesome, skillful actions, to bring them to mind. You know, it's so easy for us to see all the ways that we're not good enough, that we don't measure up, you know, our flaws and imperfections are so glaringly obvious to us most of the time. It's good to intentionally bring the opposite, our goodness, our good qualities to mind. It just helps to give us a more balanced view because we fall, many of us, out of balance in this way. And we're not, we're being realistic. We know it's a mixed, it's a mixed picture here for most of us. But we don't overlook or diminish our good qualities, and our wholesome actions. This quality of equanimity plays a key role in supporting and empowering metta and the other Brahma-viharas. And we've spoken about this in different ways, but it's really, it's their basis. They all rest on the basis of equanimity. It's what allows them to flower forth into their fullness, to really become uh, divine abidings to become Brahma-viharas. It's equanimity that allows that, that keeps them from falling into the extremes of, of their near and far neighbors or enemies. So, for example, with metta, it, it, it allows it to really um, grow great in our mind and heart. And it helps us to connect with the shared wish that all beings have to be at ease, to be happy. Even those beings people we know whose actions seem to only cause suffering in the world for themselves, for others. But equanimity gives metta the, the possibility to actually wish happiness for all beings, even those who seem to, um, seem to be going in, in directions away from ease. It, it gives this inclusive, boundless, unconditional quality, lets this unfold. It brings balance to our practice, to our meditation, metta. Metta is a great source, it's a great balancing factor for us in our practice. It infuses the mind with uh, qualities of warmth and ease and balances the, the, the sometimes overly cool or, or almost clinical way that the practice can, of vipassana, of insight meditation, can sometimes feel. 
sometimes that tone is there. And, and um, pure insight meditation has been, in one place it's called the dry path of insight. And sometimes it can feel kind of dry. Metta brings moisture to that dryness. It soothes and warms the heart, increases our capacity to stay balanced in the face of what comes and, and all the, uh, the things that give us trouble, the karmic knots and deeply conditioned mental habits that hook us even though we've seen them over and over. We see ourselves, I'm going for it, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> we just see it's like bait and we're going for it and we can watch ourselves do it. And it helps us to be with that. Metta brings uh, stability and concentration, which really is helpful to us. These are uh, very famous words from the Buddha in one teaching. He said, speaking to uh, the practitioners, bhikkhus, all of us, he says, therefore you should train yourselves thus. We will develop and cultivate the liberation of mind by loving kindness, by metta. We will make it our vehicle, make it our basis, stabilize it, steady and consolidate it, exercise ourselves in it, and fully perfect it. Thus, you should train yourselves. I have this image of of awareness, of mindfulness, riding on the vehicle of loving kindness. We make it our vehicle. When metta is our vehicle, when our mind and heart are steeped in this quality, imbued with this quality, it's so um, powerful in our lives. It brings great strength and courage and uh, patience, ability to be with uh, difficult times. I didn't have a chance to consult with Bhante's R&D department uh, for exact figures, but I have... um, it's clear that researchers agree that metta is uh, an important part of our meditation diet. And I don't know what the percent daily values are. I'll, I'll get those figures later if I may. But, um, but it's an important part. And I think it has a, quite a high daily value. And we can take it as a supplement. You know, we can do intentional metta practices. We can... We can approach it that way, but it also luckily occurs in leafy greens and other, uh, uh, you know, I've heard that actually kale has a lot of metta in it if, if it's not overcooked, or maybe if it's not undercooked, I, I don't know. <laughs> but it does occur naturally, it arises organically in the practice. It actually, um, it, this is really very true, and I, I know I've seen this so clearly in my own practice. It arises organically as we, as we start to penetrate and, and abandon layers of reactivity and uh, conditioning that have operated in our lives. As we start to see through this and it starts to fall away, this quality is what's there. It's a natural, the Brahma Viharas. These are the expression in the world of our deep, deepening understanding. So it arises naturally. Those of us who uh, meet in the evenings for the chanting, we've been uh, chanting the Metta Sutta, the Karaniya Metta Sutta, this this, uh, second half of the retreat. This is one of the most beloved uh, of the Buddha's 
discourses. It's probably chanted as frequently, maybe more frequently than any other uh, single uh, discourse all over the world. And uh, sometimes when I chant, when we chant in the evenings, I, I think of the fact that in all likelihood, somebody somewhere has chanted, that, uh, chanted this every day since the time of the Buddha. It's quite likely. It's a long time. Andy Olensky, at, uh, a poly scholar, a teacher at uh, the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies, in one article he wrote, he, he described it as a jewel sparkling softly but compellingly through the centuries. That's a, a beautiful description. It is a kind of jewel for us. So I'm going to go through the words because it's not just a beautiful description. It's actually the, the chant that we do. It's, there's a lot of practice. There's practice and reflection. It's uh, everything the Buddha taught, I think, really is a practice. But it's certainly in this, uh, in the sutta there. I'll go through uh, at least some of it. It has the form. It, it, uh, those of you who've been chanting it know it comes across as a kind of lovely poem in a way but it also has a kind of a threefold structure that has a bit of a relationship to uh, the structure of the eightfold path and the trainings, the three, what are called the three trainings. Uh, Bhante, I think, spoke about the three trainings, the sila samadhi panya, um, this, this sort of way of seeing the eightfold path. And um, the Karaniya Metta Sutta also follows this uh, format, this structure to some extent. Um, so it begins uh, in, in the same way with a lot about sila, the very beginning part of it. It talks about um, sila as the foundation, it's where we begin. Emphasized a lot by the Buddha, the importance of this foundation. And it's addressed very directly in the first part of the sutta. It says, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward, gentle in speech. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. What uh, this emphasis on, on how we live in the world. There's a book uh, called For a Future to be Possible, Thich Nhat Hanh put together. And in that book he has a, it's a collection of different essays, but uh, he has his own way of speaking about the precepts. He calls them the five wonderful precepts. And he says, the five wonderful precepts are love itself. To love is to understand, protect, and bring well-being to the object of our love. The practice of the precepts accomplishes this. We protect ourselves and we protect one another. It's a beautiful way to see them as an expression, a manifestation of love to protect and bring well-being to others. And this first part of the sutta also points to uh, a life of simplicity and renunciation that was practiced by the Buddha and his followers, still followed by uh, those who uh, take up the renunciate life uh, of a nun or a monk today. Humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. 
And there's a lesson really, I think, for all of us in this encouragement towards simplicity and to bring care and mindfulness uh, to how we live our lives. And you can look at this in all kinds of ways, you know, just how we use the resources of the planet, for example, and attention to how much we're using, how much we really need. You know, we're a pretty voracious species. We want all the best stuff and we don't leave a lot left over for other beings. We live in, we have these economic systems that are, are based on continual growth as if that was in the long run sustainable. Some, something not being seen there. You know, when we foul the air and the water and, you know, we'd never tolerate this kind of behavior on the part of some other species. You know, like if chipmunks or chipmunks or prairie dogs were acting the way we do, <laughs> we would we try to eradicate them as a terrible pest. You know, but we we have a we have some odd standards here. <laughs> and how often do we ask ourselves, "What do I need right now to be happy in this moment to feel content, to feel complete?" You know, it's so easy to see all that we don't have. And if we look, we might find we don't actually need that much. That a simple life brings its own kind of blessing. And this is something that struck me so, surprised me so much. And I think the first time I felt this was when I, I came and sat the three-month retreat here. And I was very new to practice. I'd only been meditating for a few months. And I came and I noticed at one point that I was really, I was so content and I wasn't having a good time. I mean, it was, it was rough a lot. Of, it wasn't because it was, you know, just yuckety yuck fun. <laughs> I mean, you know, once in a while it was okay. <laughs> One of my high points were kind of okay. But there was this, I was so content. At one point I thought, why would I be content now? It struck me very... It's very striking to me. I remember one time I was staying in the Thai Vihara in Bodh Gaya, sleeping underneath the, the main temple. You couldn't stand up straight on a straw pallet. I could give you tragic details about the setting there. <laughs> that was where we slept. I had some kind of bug in my system that was giving me trouble in my guts. And um, the food was, it kept us alive. And <laughs> You know, every morning I carried two giant buckets of urine out because all the men peed in these buckets all night and someone had to dump them. And, you know, it wasn't like, doesn't sound great to you probably, (laughs) but I was so contented at one point. I just thought, wow, if this is my rest of my life, I'm fine with it. It was kind of striking how, where contentment can be found. It's not so much based on uh, external conditions. Mm. I'm not going to get this all in. The second part of the, the path is really the practice. I'll just say a little bit about it and I'll read the words. You know, the word karaniya means, uh, it has to do with a thing that is to be done, it means to be done. Uh, the discourse on loving kindness, which is to be done. That karaniya says that. And um, this part is really the practice. It says, wishing 
In gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there might be, whether weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Now this is the practice, wishing in this way, may all beings be at ease. And this direct speaking to the boundless, uh, unconditional quality there, whatever beings without exception, making sure you get them all in there, visible, invisible, not yet born, they're all included. This emphasis on expansiveness and unconditionality. You know, so much of the time we can feel that we're not worthy in some way or that others are not worthy and that we must fix some aspect of our personality or something about us to become worthy. But metta doesn't demand this and it's not in the sutta. You know, that we have to prove ourselves worthy or find... uh, find others worthy, you know. We're, we're judged as worthy because we are living beings. You know, we're all pre-qualified in this way. Our worthiness is based on the fact that we're living beings. We don't have to prove ourselves. And the Buddha doesn't say anything about this. He doesn't say, find someone without flaws or irritating habits and practice loving kindness for them. <laughs> it's not qualified. He said, he said that you could search the whole universe over and not find anyone more worthy than, than you are yourself. This is a poem by Mary Oliver. It's called Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through, through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. The next uh, part of the sutta is is more of a commentary on qualities of mind. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down. When freed from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. 
For some people, this mother protecting her child can bring things up. We would say a good mother, a careful mother. Sometimes we haven't had this in our lives. There's an image in some of the texts uh, that describes metta. It's, it's described as a mother cow cares for her calf. We don't hang around with cows and calves, most of us. Maybe some of us have been on a farm or maybe we, I don't know, maybe some of you have a cow and a calf at home, but <laughs> they weren't in my life much um, growing up in cities. And one time I was living in the... Uh, doing a long retreat in a, the Sagang Hills near the, the uh, monastery I mentioned where Saida Ulakana was the abbot. I was in a cave up behind there, high in the hills. and It was a nice cave. <laughs> I don't want you to get the idea that it was, you know, too rustic. It was a, it was a pretty pukka cave, as caves go. But it was a cave. And I was doing, I was living as a monk and I would walk down into the village on alms round. And one day, Every day I'd go the same route and I came around the corner and there was a cow in, a, in someone's yard and, and a brand new baby calf that was just barely wobbly on its legs and the mother cow was uh, bathing it, just was born. And it was this, I thought, oh, there's, there's an expression why they would have this image for this quality of, of metta, this natural care there. I was thinking about cows bathing uh, they have rough tongues, cows. I don't know if any of you have been licked by a cow. Very rough tongues. Someone, a, a friend of mine told me this story. She was in Nepal, in Pokhara. And she was sitting in a cafe looking out and, and uh, someone who was, who was living as a beggar and was crippled and was on a, a kind of wheeled little platform pulling themselves along the road in a hot day. And they stopped at one point and this cow, there's cows on the streets in India and Nepal. And this cow came up and started licking this beggar. He was just in with a pair of shorts, uh, gave him a, a bath. I think he was salty probably. And he was a, a mobile salt lick for the cow. But <laughs> the cow just, and the beggar was just like in this ecstatic state getting this cow tongue bath. Is this another beautiful image of a kind of metta related to cows? <laughs> beautiful image there. Hmm. All right, to jump ahead. <clears throat> anyway, may you have cow metta come to you at some point, perhaps. And then the last part, the third part, the final part of the sutta really shifts and it points to, um, uh, away from the practice and points towards the liberating uh, potential. It's a very short last verse. It says, by not holding to fixed views, the pure hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires is not born again into this world. So there's a few things here with the qualities of uh, liberating wisdom. And the first of these being uh, not holding to fixed views or mistaken views. And you know, the Buddha taught that our views are limited fabrications that are not necessarily a reflection of the truth or reality and often may do more to confuse things than bring clarity. And there's so many things that we could 
look at as views to be a mindful of, but um, one fundamental mistaken view that I think the practice of metta addresses very directly is is the view that um, that leads us to take that which is not capable of providing a lasting source of happiness to be capable of doing so. Uh, the idea that following the energy, the path of uh, desire, craving, satisfying desire could lead to lasting kind of happiness. And uh, the power of metta is that it can help undo this mistaken view. It can bring the clarity of vision that is spoken about here. Because there's a deeper, much more satisfying kind of happiness to be found in this practice. And it helps turn the mind and heart towards, towards something that might be a more reliable source through this deeper, satisfying kind of happiness. A kind of happiness that isn't so tied to worldly conditions or worldly pursuits. And metta also in the, that last line said, the pure hearted one with clarity of vision. Metta can point us toward this quality of purity of heart. And, and in the sutta, it's pointing towards the, the one who's the arahant, the fully liberated being whose heart is uh, completely purified. But we can also touch this in our lives, those of us who aren't yet arahants. You know, there are moments when there is this sense of purity of heart. It might not be there all the time. It's not the final done deal version of it, but it is real and it's good to open to this. And so if we really connect to uh, the practice of loving kindness, really plumb the depths of this, it really can um, lead to uh, liberation. Someone once asked the, the teacher Deepama if they should practice metta or vipassana and she, and, and she said, it doesn't matter. It, they both go to the same place. That it's not, a, you don't have to choose in that way. And so there is a way that this quality of loving kindness can lead us to see through some of the mistaken views and lead lead towards freedom, towards understanding. The Buddha often referred to what he called the liberation of mind through the development of loving kindness. And in one sutta, he, he spoke about this in different ways, but there's one sutta where he spoke about the liberation of mind through loving kindness and, and also referred to the way that the power of this in the world, the way it can ripple out through the world and spread forth. I'd like to read that said, just as if a mighty trumpeter were with little difficulty to make a proclamation to the four directions, so by this liberation of the mind through the development of loving kindness, one sets, a, sets an example, leaving nothing untouched there, nothing unaffected there. This beautiful quality that nothing is untouched, unaffected, when this is strong in the heart and mind. One of my friends recently told me that uh, she had changed uh, her religion on Facebook to kindness. I don't really, I don't really know what Facebook is. I confess, but apparently you can say something about your religion there. 
And she changed, she said she changed it to kindness because of, uh, kind of in response and in honor of the Dalai Lama, it's famously quoted as saying, my religion is very simple, my religion is kindness. And so she had put that down, which I thought was a lovely gesture. And You know, we hear this, it's a, we hear this a lot, my religion is very simple, my religion is kindness. And it sounds very sweet, but it can sound sort of, um, you know, almost like something you'd find in a greeting card. And we can hear it and dismiss, um, easily, I think, dismiss and, and overlook the profound understanding that's expressed in this simple statement. And in this context, if we think of religion as, as kind of, you could say, the worldly expression of the deepest spiritual truths, the deepest kinds of understandings, then we can start to touch into what His Holiness was pointing to when he made this statement. Because when uh, the deepest truths are integrated into our essence, then kindness as our religion is just a natural expression in the world. It's an expression of our understanding. It's not a choice we make or a stance we adopt or some decision. It's just that's what's there. It's the organic expression of the liberated heart and mind. So I began the talk this evening with this, the, that verse, the poem that uh, pointed to the possibility that one might develop a mind that is one's greatest friend. These are some words from another one of my teachers, Sayada Ujotaka. He said, how can you make your mind your real friend? By practicing mindfulness, by really watching your mind, really paying attention throughout the day, then you will see the truth about your mind. And when you see the truth, gradually it will become purer and purer and it will become your friend. And so when we see the truth about, the deep truth about this mind heart, it really does become our friend. It really can become our best friend, our greatest friend. I want to leave you this evening with uh, a poem. It's, it might be my very favorite poem. Some of you have heard me read it before, but it's a meta wish for you all. This is called The Initiation Song from the Finder's Lodge. It's by Ursula K. Le Guin. Please bring strange things. Please come bringing new things. Let very old things come into your hands. Let what you do not know come into your eyes. Let desert sand harden your feet. Let the arch of your feet be the mountains and the paths of your fingertips be your maps. And let the ways you go be the lines on your palms. Let there be deep snow in your in-breathing and your out-breath be the shining of ice. May your mouth contain the shapes of strange words. May you smell food cooking you have not eaten. May the spring of a foreign river be your navel. May your soul be at home where there are no houses. Walk carefully, well-loved one. Walk mindfully, well-loved one. 
Walk fearlessly, well-loved one. Return with us, return to us. Be always coming home. So we'll just sit quietly for another moment or so. Thank you for your kind attention. Um, Some walking meditation or more sitting. And uh, we'll have the chanting at nine. Um, We're going to um, do the metta practice chanting from part one. Uh, We'll have, because I want to record it tomorrow, so we'll have a practice. (laughs) And uh, I'll see if I can get Sister Jewel to lead us in that. So if you have those sheets and anyone from part one who hasn't been coming and wants to, please be welcome. Um, and we'll do, we'll do it all, the Metta Sutta as well. So uh, please be welcome. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.